0: Amen. Genesis chapter 2, please. Genesis chapter 2, and we're turning to the verse 18. And really we're finishing our little mini-series that we've ended up in. In Genesis chapter 2, of course, we're dealing with the Genesis 1 through to 11 in this series, in the will of God. We've called it Back to the Beginning, as we head back to the beginning of time in this universe. And uh, we've been thinking of these first things, Uh, that are in chapter 2. We've thought of the first Sabbath, we've thought of the first man, we've thought of the first home, we've thought of the first covenant, and today we come to the final first in chapter 2 here, the first marriage. Let's read about it here, chapter 2, and the verse 18, and we'll read through to the verse 25, the end of the chapter. And This is the word of the Lord. We read there, and the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an meet for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle. And to, all, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh, and thereof, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. We trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Last week as we considered the first covenant, we discovered that we have a God who provides for us abundantly. He provides a place for humanity to live in, in the world that he has made. Remember, we looked at verse 8, and we thought of the language there, and it said, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, God in his grace, a place man in the garden. And within that garden, God provided those aesthetics, those beautiful things to look at, and he provided the food to eat. And there are many delicious things in that garden, I'm sure. And we saw that in verse 9. So God, and at the very beginning, graciously, he provided a place for man to live. He, he provided beautiful things for man to look at and lovely things and delicious things for him to eat. In that garden also, we saw in verse 9, that he gave the tree of life, which was right in the center. And there it says the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And we're told in chapter 3 and verse 22 that the tree was designed to provide people with eternal life. Also God, he provided the sustaining rivers for the garden in verse 10 we read and a river went out of Eden to water the garden and from fence it was parted and became into four heads and the text speaks of these four massive rivers not one two or three but there were four rivers and this was the most irrigated garden that you can imagine of course, as you think about it, this was Moses inspired by the spirit of God who was penning these words. And as he read these words to the original hearers who would have been the children of Israel, as they listened in the plains of Moab, listening to Moses reciting Genesis to them, and they heard this description, their eyes would have opened wide. A land with water, with abundance, where things could be grown, where things could be sustained. They were in the wilderness listening to this. A land with all these lovely precious stones, a place that was flourishing. This was a garden beyond their wildest dreams. And yet there was more. Not only had God provided a place for humanity, the aesthetics, the food, the tree of life, the rivers, but God also provided work. In verse 15 we read last time when the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Uh, They were to dress it or to work in it and keep it. God provided work for them. But finally and most importantly last time we learned that God, he provided his law a way by which they could express their thanks to God. For all that he provided for them. And in verses 16 and 17 we read. And the Lord God commanded the man saying. Of every tree in the garden thou mayest eat freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. And for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And of course, of course God he provided his law. By a means in which they could show their love to him. By their obedience to him. And unfortunately they disobeyed. And we'll learn a bit more about that in the coming weeks as we enter into chapter 3. But that was the first covenant. Today we come to the first marriage. The first marriage. And I suppose we could call it uh, God's blueprint for marriage. Many years ago Thomas Paine, the United States ambassador, was visiting Paris. And as he saw the crowds thronging the streets at Christmas time, He wasn't with his family and he wasn't with his wife and his loved ones back at home. And in his cold hotel room, he penned the thoughts of his heart and he wrote this. Mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. Charles Spurgeon said, the word home sounds like poetry to me. It doesn't matter if it's a cottage or a mansion. Home is home, and there's no place like it on earth. Significantly, these quotations are from well over a century ago, and today the home has fallen on hard times. The sign that is hung in a Hollywood jewellery store these days could read, We rent wedding rings. It seems now that this temporary commitment to marriage is being embraced by many And sadly it's entering into the church of Jesus Christ. There are more marriages breaking down today after a very, very short time. We must return to consider God's blueprint found in these verses that we have read together this morning. We need to blow the dust off God's original marriage, the blueprint for the home. And our great need is to hear what God has to say to his people about his design. After all... Marriage is God's invention. Did you hear that? Did you get it? Let me make it clear from this pulpit today. Marriage belongs to God. He invented it. He designed it. And marriage is between one man and one woman. And that will always be the stance of this church fellowship. Why? Because it's biblical. The rulers in our land may try to redefine the meaning of marriage, but it was never theirs to redefine. Marriage belongs to God. And he has ordained that it's between one man and one woman. And we're going to learn much about it as we consider this passage that is before us this morning. I want you to see the original marriage. The original marriage Here are three questions that we need to ask. The first question we need to ask is, where and when was marriage instituted? Where and when was marriage instituted? Well, look at verse 18 with me. It says there, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and I will make and help meet for him marriage it was instituted in the Garden of Eden and both the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul appealed to Eden as the basic pattern for all time. verse 18 tells us that God said it's not good for the man to be alone and he would make a helpmate for him. Now before we read before we read this statement in verse 18, as far as Adam was concerned, life was good. As Adam looked at life everything was perfect, the garden was perfect, the the food provided was perfect, the scenery provided was perfect and at this stage in human history he too was perfect and he was conscious of the presence of God and he communed with God and he really had no concept of a woman because there was no woman existed at this point in verse 18. And life seemed to him to be absolutely perfect at this point, certainly. And then in verses 19 and 20, God gives Adam an object lesson. We had an object lesson today with the shoes up in the pulpit. And David was sharing many different lessons that we can learn from God's word with these objects. Well, God gives Adam an object lesson. And all these animals are brought before him and they go by. And Adam names the animals and he starts to recognize some characteristics about them. And one of the things that he would note about these animals is they all existed in pairs. And Adam, he has perfect intelligence. And as the animals are parading in front of them, he begins to recognize that there's male and female here. And as he goes through the process, at the end of verse 20, it says, But for Adam there was not found and help me for him. Or another version puts it, for Adam there was not a helper suitable for him. Nothing in the animal kingdom was suitable for him and he recognised this. So God, who is the original, original anaesthetist and God who is the original surgeon, causes a deep sleep to fall in Adam. Because God was going to do an operation and it says there in the verse, it says in 21 that Adam slept. He slept while God operated. And here was the operation. He took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. And so God puts Adam out and then he takes his divine scalpel and as it were and he cuts open Adam and he closes the flesh in the place where he did the surgery. And God took bone and flesh with blood in it and he fashioned the most beautiful of all his creatures. And no one could argue with that. He fashioned a woman with all the loveliness and all the beauty and all the grace that a man could ever imagine until he saw one. And then in verse 22, we're told that God brought her to the man. And then we have this first marriage. As far as I know, there is only one statement about marriage that God includes four times in the Bible. He makes this statement in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. In Matthew chapter 19 verse 5, in Mark chapter 10 verses 7 and 8, and in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31. The statement is this, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. God makes this statement once in the Old Testament and three times in the New Testament. He makes it once before men fell into sin and three times after men uh, men fell into sin. And the statement contains God's all-time blueprint for a good marriage. Where and when was marriage instituted? It was in the garden. Well, who instated it? What was God? This was God's invention. We need to make this clear today. This was not an invention of man. Don't think that somewhere in a cave around a flickering fire one night that a group of people decided that marriage might be a good idea. No, God tells us that he himself... Established and instituted and ordained marriage at the beginning of human history. Marriage is not simply a civil institution. For it was founded before the existence of civil society. Moreover, it's it's not simply a Christian institution either. But it's a creation ordinance. And it was God who created this. He made it for man. You see, at this stage, there's no such thing as a Christian or a Jew. Or anything like this at this stage God has just created the perfect world and in that perfect world God has ordained that a man and a woman should marry the Lord Jesus said what therefore God hath joined together let no man put asunder for who was marriage instituted well marriage is for all mankind so said it's not merely for Jews and Christians It's a creation ordinance. It was instituted for man as man, not something for a Jew or a Christian. At this stage in history, no such thing as a Jew or a Christian, albeit uh, for the believer, for the person who is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, they will find the greatest joy in in the marriage relationship. They will find it more meaningful if he guides his marriage by the divine manual, which is God's word. Can I ask you, Men particularly, how are you leading your home? Does God's word have its rightful place? Is it honoured and obeyed in your home? Do you have a family altar? Is God's word read often with the family gathered round about? You might be able to pull the wool over people's eyes if you come to church on Sunday in your lovely suit and your big Bible. But God sees what happens in the home. Is he honoured? You see, marriage, it was set out at the beginning as normal. And the normal state is marriage, not celibacy. Rome would seek to teach us that. A man and his wife were put into the garden, not a single person celibacy is exceptional and it, and it takes a particular gift and there are those who are called to celibacy Matthew 19 verses 11-12 tells us that, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7 tells us that but God intended that a man and a woman should be together he put a man and a woman in that first garden and the Lord says it is not good that man should be alone, marriage is a divine institution, it's from God and therefore it's good and some people today in our society, they sneer at marriage and they you would think that Satan himself introduced it. Marriage was ordained by God and within the bond of marriage, sexual relations are holy, right and good. Sexual relations outside of marriage are against God's order. And they're against God's will. Do you see what God is doing in marriage? He's providing for our emotional needs. He's providing for our intellectual needs. He, he's providing for our social needs. He's providing for our spiritual needs. And He's providing for our physical needs. So we have the original marriage. But I want you to see also the parting at marriage. There's a parting at marriage. Look at verse 24 says this therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh now don't misunderstand these words it's not just the husband only that has to make the decisive break at marriage rather the husband as the divinely appointed head of the home is required to set the example to his wife uh, to give guidance to her in both aspects of leaving and cleaving Now, as I said here, it's God's blueprint for marriage, and there's four aspects to it. Uh, There must be severance, leave, says verse 24. Uh, There must be permanence, cleave, says verse 24. Uh, There must be unity, uh, because it says one flesh in verse 24. And then there must be intimacy, for we see in verse 25, they were both naked. There must be severance. The relationship to your parents must be changed. The cord must be cut with the parents. For a man can no longer sustain the relationship with his parents that he once had. He now must become the head of a new decision-making body, which we call the family. You see, while the husband and the wife relationship is permanent, the parent-child relationship is not. Someone has said that at marriage something is broke up which is temporary in favour of joining together something which is permanent. So your relationship with your parents must be changed. Now what does that mean? It means that you must be more concerned about your spouse's ideas and opinions and practices than those of your parents'. It means that you must be—you de- must not be dependent on your parents anymore for affection and approval and assistance and counsel. However, let me make this very clear, in case you misunderstand what I'm saying. It's right to still have your parents' affection and assistance and counsel. It's not that you cut them out and that's it. That's not the case at all. But there's a new relationship with them. There's a change happens. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. Have you obeyed this demand, this divine requirement in marriage? Have you left your father and mother? Since you took those solemn vows, has your relationship with your parents changed? Well, there's also something to be said about the relationship with your spouse. There must be permanence. Look at the key words here in verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. And look at the next part of the phrase. And shall cleave unto his wife. Not only severance but there's permanence. Leave. Leave. And cleave, sever, and bond, loosen, and secure, depart from, and attach to. Charles Swindle tells us that the Hebrew term translated cleave means to glue or to cling. Moses writes using the same Hebrew word of diseases clinging to the body. Uh, Job mentions bones clinging to the skin using the same Hebrew word. Both use the same original word. Do you know what today's problem is? Couples enter the marriage relationship believing if it gets bad, well I can get out. (laughs) Till death do us part is just a form of words. For more and more it's being interpreted till disagreement us do part, or till other interests us do part. But this was never God's original match. During our country's darkest days in the Second World War, it was a pudgy, cigar-smoking, unimpressive-looking man who held our country together. And while other voices were shouting surrender, Sir Winston Churchill stood fast, bombs devastated city blocks, buildings were crumbling, bridges failed. but the stubborn Prime Minister, he refused to budge. Never once did he consider negotiating with the Nazis. He operated on a simple rule of thumb when it came to winning a war. On numerous occasions, Churchill stated his philosophy in six words, Wars are not won by evacuations. Surrendering is not an option if you plan to win the war or to succeed in marriage. You see, the leaving is with the view to cleaving. This means that the husband-wife relationship and not the parent child relationship as your priority human relationship. The parent child relationship is never described in terms of leaving and cleaving or of being one flesh. Children don't need indulgent parents who continually neglect each other. They need parents who show them how to face and to solve their problems. Parents who will show them how to be good husbands and how to be good wives and how to relate to other people. Do you know what all this means practically? Wayne Mack puts it like this. If you are parents, your goal should be to prepare your children to leave and not to stay. And when your children marry, you must not run their lives. How many marriages have been wrecked by interfering parents, parents who have failed to see God's plain directive. The original marriage, the the parting at marriage. I want you to see the reasons for marriage. Well first first of all there's the, the problem of loneliness. Look at verse eighteen again. It says, And the Lord God said it was not good that the man should be alone. So I will make him and help me for him. Now this event occurred on the sixth day of the creative week. And God performed miracle after miracle, day after day, and on four distinct occasions, God passed his approval on his creation, and God said that it was good. But what you do notice about God's statement concerning Adam in verse 18, instead of him saying it was good, he says it is not good. This is the first time in the Bible that God says that something isn't good. Now, what isn't good? God says it's not good for man to be alone. Now, this is not just a passing comment. In the original Hebrew, the negative has a serious emphasis on how terrible this is. It's not good. It speaks of aloneness. And God the creator saw man, his creature, as isolated and in an alone condition. And he declared that Adam's solidarity was a state that was not good. You see, God cared about Adam's aloneness. And Adam's wife was Adam's wife was in the mind of God long before she was in the arms of Adam. So one of the reasons for marriage was to solve the problem of loneliness. Companionship, therefore, is an essence of marriage. Also we see the procreation of children. What was God's mandate to Adam and Eve? What was God's mandate? Well, you go back to chapter 1 and verse 27 and 28 and you read God's mandate. It says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them. And God said unto them, and here's God's mandate for them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. God blesses them, how does he bless them? He blesses them by telling them to be fruitful and multiply. God simply meant, I give you my blessing to bear children to fill the earth and subdue it. So childbearing is another reason for marriage. We see as well the promotion of unity, turn back with me to chapter 2 and verse 24. And we see there, and they shall be one flesh. What does that mean? It means a total commitment to intimacy in all of life together. Symbolized by the physical union of husband and wife. One plus one equals one. It may not be accurate mathematically, but it's an accurate description of God's intention for marriage. For God's purpose is total unity. Now tell me: Is your relationship with your husband, wife, a healthy one? Are you becoming more and more as one mind in your outlooks, in your goals? Look finally at the commitment of marriage. I want you to see that marriage is an enduring relationship. In other words, in other words, in the marriage ceremony, you say it's until death us do part. Do you recall the words of the Lord Jesus Christ? Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together let no man put asunder. We live in a day when we may think well if marriage doesn't work we can get a divorce. And people make their vows to be faithful unto death. But underneath their breath, they say, unless our problems get too great. God says, no, that's not the way that I planned it. I want husband and wife to cleave to one another. Society today stresses the parent-child relationship to be the most significant one. And it's, of course, it's an important relationship. But it's not what the Bible emphasizes. The parent child relationship is temporary. The husband wife relationship is permanent. And your children need to see an exemplary marriage before them. So that when they go on and when they get married, they'll have seen a good model of how the home should run, how a godly home should run. You see, one day your children will grow and get married. You may turn and look at each other and find you've nothing in common anymore because the focus was the children and they're all away. But marriage, it's an enduring relationship. I want you to see as well that marriage is an exclusive relationship. You know, the Bible says, keep thee only unto her. God's ideal is one man and one woman for life. It's interesting that the Bible describes marriage as a covenant. You see, marriage, it is a covenant. In the book of Proverbs, the wife who leaves her husband whom she married in her youth is accused by God of forgetting the covenant of her God. In Malachi, we read similar words. And do you know something? A good marriage is based more on commitment than feeling or attraction. Marriage is an irrevocable covenant or contract to which we are bound. When two people get married, they're committing themselves to each other and entering a solemn and binding agreement. Marriage is a covenant, but marriage is a covenant between two people. It's between one man and one woman. Homosexual marriage is forbidden explicitly in scripture. We see it in Leviticus chapter eighteen, twenty-two, and Romans chapter 1, 27. And polygamy is is forbidden implicitly. God created one wife for Adam, not two. And God said that two, not three, shall be one flesh. Marriage is a covenant between two people. But finally, marriage is a covenant between two people who promise to be faithful to each other, regardless of what happens. Now, There are grounds in which a marriage can end. Christ gave them. I don't want to be ignorant to that today. But the truth of the matter is, what we said on our wedding day was for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. Did you say that on your wedding day? That means that the wife will be faithful even when the husband is afflicted with bulges and boldness and bunions. Even if he loses his health and wealth and his job and his charm. Even if someone more exciting comes along. This means that the husband will be faithful even if the wife loses her beauty. Even if she's not as neat and tidy as she once was. Or as submissive as you would like her to be. Even if she spends money foolishly and the man can spend money foolishly too. Or even if she's a terrible cook. Even if her hair goes grey, one wife turned to her husband and said, will you still love me when my hairs are grey? Why not? He said, I've loved you through the other five shades. You see, marriage means that a husband and wife enter into a relationship in which they commit themselves to each other regardless of what happens. Someone put it like this, marriage is total commitment. And a total sharing of the total person with another person until death. Husbands. Wives. In this place today. Don't take your marriage for granted. Take it with gratitude. Don't take each other for granted. Be kind. Submissive. And thoughtful. Don't forget the common courtesies of life be loving to each other and in so doing reflect the relationship between Christ and his church and bring glory to God who instituted marriage. A word for the young people, those who are teens, who maybe you'll grow a bit older and you'll meet a fella you'll meet a girl. Maybe you're here today and you're a young fella or a young girl and you're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour can I tell you something you make sure you find someone who loves the Lord you make sure you find someone who will draw you closer to Christ make sure you find someone uh, who indeed will love their Bible and love God's house and love being there and let me tell you don't use bring anyone Apart from that, because the Bible says we're not to be unequally yoked. So don't you bring someone to me, because I'll tell you now, if you come to me and say, well, can I, will you marry us? And they're not saved. My answer will be no. You make sure you find someone who loves the Lord. And I'll draw you closer to him. We're going to sing together our closing hymn at this stage. We're going to sing how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord. Is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he have said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have led. Why are we singing this? Well, if you want a marriage to last, there's only one foundation to build it on. Uh, at Lucy's cousin's wedding that we were at recently, the man took a piece of string and he got the bride and the groom to hold both sides of it and he uh, He took the string and he said, if you're lifting your thoughts to Christ, he pushed it up in the middle and the string drew them both closer together. If you're building your foundation in Christ, if you're looking to him, it'll make the marriage bond all the sweeter.